Mark chapter one, beginning in verse 32. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. In the opening chapter of Mark, remember, we see a glimpse of the first day of the ministry of Jesus, a day in the life of Jesus. It begins with worship in the synagogue. Jesus there demonstrates his power over demons. After the synagogue service, Jesus is invited to the home of Simon Peter and Andrew. There he touches Simon Peter and Andrew's mother-in-law and heals her of a fever. In the space of a few hours, Jesus confronts a demon, calms a fever. But do you know what both of those things have in common? Neither present a problem for Jesus. Neither present a problem for Jesus because Jesus is able because he has power over demons. He has power over disruption. He has power over disease. And you don't have to live very long in this world to realize that there is something terribly wrong with our world. Last night, I was watching closely the Mississippi as it began to swell. This morning, before I walked out the door, I watched as they opened the uh, floodgates in, in Morganzana because there, millions of gallons of water was being released where the floodwaters of the Mississippi are being re-diverted. And by the time this service is over with, 11,000 people will go back to what used to be their home. There's a problem in the world that we live in. We know that things don't always go right. Sometimes they go terribly wrong. We live in a broken world. We live in a possessed world. We live in a diseased world. There's something haunted in the world in which we live. We also know that we live in a beautiful world. When we walk out the doors, when we leave the service today, we'll look towards the west and we'll see our gorgeous mountains. There are impressive oceans. There are mysterious jungles. We see people demonstrate both love and hate and sacrifice and selfishness. We see people in want and we see people with plenty. We hear about the desire for peace. We see the repeated conflicts. We know people want health. We know people experience disease in a world where people are sick it makes perfect sense that we would want to hear a message of healing in a world where people are possessed it makes sense that we would want to hear a message of deliverance does anyone have the power to help does anyone have the power for support One of the messages of the New Testament is that Jesus comes to heal and to deliver. Jesus has the power to help. But does Jesus have the power to help today? Does Jesus have the power to heal today? Does Jesus have the power to solve problems today? The people had heard that Jesus delivered a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. The people had heard that a woman with a raging fever was offered a cure. 
does Jesus have the power to help in my circumstance? I brought you back through time and space into the first century, into the first day of the life of Jesus. We've gone with him to worship. We've gone to him in the afternoon. And now the evening is setting and we're going to discover some things. In this passage, we discover an approachable Jesus in verse 32. We understand and see a Jesus who can be accessed, who has compassion and power in verse 33. We see a Jesus who is willing to open a door for all in verse 33 and willing to help and provide hope in verse 34. The passage in Mark's gospel doesn't focus on the origin of demons or the problem of disease. It doesn't speak to the spiritual or the medical origins of demon possession or the presence of disease, but rather on the ability of Jesus both to affect conquest and cure. The cross of Calvary and the resurrection of Jesus has rendered Satan's power hollow and demonic powers limited. But was Paul right when he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood? but against principalities and powers about thrones and dominions. Are there dark places? Are there demonic strongholds? And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. But Jesus is approachable. Jesus is accessible. Jesus is able to intervene and overthrow and overwhelm the opposition. And right from the start, we need to know something. And I'm grateful that people come to church, that you bring your family and your friends to church, that you even bring your family and friends to me. You say, we've got to let them talk to Gino. But the truth is that neither me nor anyone else in this church has the power to save anyone. Deliver anyone, heal anyone, change anyone's heart. Only Jesus has that power. You see, the truth is, when you come here, my immediate response is, I'm going to take you to Jesus. We need to go to Jesus. We need to ask Jesus. We need to pray to Jesus and allow Jesus to, the, to do the work that only Jesus can do. And so we see the approachable Jesus in verse 32. Read again. At evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon possessed. Remember, we started the morning, the afternoon. Now the sun has set. The Sabbath has ended. Every observant Jew knew that Sabbath or Shabbat began when the sun set on Friday and the sun set on Saturday. According to the law, it said that the Sabbath ended when three stars appeared in the night. Can you imagine the sun is going down and the first star appears? The second star appears. The third star appears. And you know what that means? It's safe. It's safe to travel. You don't have to worry about breaking the law or the legal observances surrounding the Sabbath. And by the way, 
breaking the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath is going to provide a focus of controversy throughout Jesus's ministry. The observant Jew dared not bring the sick until the Sabbath was passed. But isn't it interesting? The Bible refers to the Messiah as the bright and morning star. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it talks about by the leading of a star, God did manifest to the Gentiles that a Messiah would be there. And all of a sudden, the sun has set, the darkness has come, and the little village of Capernaum begins to be surrounded, not by dozens, not by hundreds, but by thousands of people who begin to crowd into the little village. And by the way, Mark makes a distinction between those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. The word translated demon-possessed in the original language means exactly that. It means to be indwelt by a malevolent spirit being. The Bible teaches that demon possession isn't simply a possibility, but a reality. Demons can make people self-destructive, suicidal, fearful. Sin and Satan both enslaved, but Jesus will demonstrate his power to liberate people from the forces of darkness. And those who have ever had experiences with the insane and the possessed soon see the difference. The Bible teaches that there's only one devil, but there are many demons. And like I said, the Bible doesn't explicitly teach about the origin of demons. Conservative Bible scholars have speculated that a great war took place in heaven. That Lucifer, the chief angel, exalted himself and challenged God's right to rule. Not only did Lucifer exalt his will above God's will, but he sought to persuade other angels to disobey God. And each generation faces a similar temptation. And each generation faces a similar decision. Who will rule? Who will rule? Who will be in control of my life? Who will take authority and control of my life? Who will make the decisions of my life? Did God create demons? You know, on my radio program, a person called and said, Hey, if God's so smart, why did he create the devil? That doesn't seem to be a smart thing to do. The right answer, God didn't create the devil or demons. God created angels, magnificent angels, free-willed beings with mind and personality, with gifts and calling. But some chose to disobey and rebel. God created angels with will and gifts. As a matter of fact, they're referred to in the Bible as ministering spirits. Certain angels abandoned their first estate, rebelled and decided to follow Lucifer in his insane plans of independence from God. So, our in Demon-possessed people insane? Well, in one sense, because the demon that's inside of them is insane. It's insanity to wage war against God. It's insanity to declare independence and separation from God. 
Demons are described in the Bible as unclean here in the first chapter of Mark. And also in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, they're described as evil in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Powerful in Luke chapter 8, verse 29. Numerous in Mark chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. And under Satan's leadership and direction in Matthew chapter 24, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, verses 24 through 30. So it's okay to ask the question, how did these people come to be possessed by demons? The answer, the passage doesn't tell us. We're not told. So we can only speculate. Clearly, it's been my experience that those people who are inhabited by demons have trafficked somehow in wickedness. Demons seem to infest human beings sometimes with their will and sometimes against their will. But the Bible does say that Satan is a thief and that he is a liar and that he is a murderer. And I need to tell you that demons have one driving agenda. And that is to destroy what God loves. And if they cannot destroy what God loves, then they want to defile what God loves. And if they cannot destroy or defile what God loves, then they will try to diminish what God loves, namely the truth, namely you. God loves you. Jesus really does love you. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and in it, he describes imaginary conversations between a demon named Wormwood and his bumbling nephew named Screwtape. And the book was meant to describe some of the tactics and schemes of the enemy and how the enemy uses temptation and uses wickedness to cause Christians to stumble. C.S. Lewis would later write about the reality of demons. Quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. I think Lewis is right. The Bible clearly speaks to the reality that there is an invisible world occupied by invisible beings. In Mark chapter 5, we will ask and answer questions about whether or not Christians can be demon-possessed. We'll ask and answer the question about how we can tell if a person is just emotionally or mentally distressed or if they are in fact demon-possessed. In brief, a demon-possessed person is actually inhabited and controlled by an alien interdimensional being. This isn't acting. It's not the creation of another personality to mask sinful behavior. The Bible distinguishes between possession and disease. Demon-possessed people have unusual strength. They have an unhealthy preoccupation with the dead. They engage in self-destructive behavior. They're often given to fits of rage. They experience what's known as splitting or personality disintegration. Demon-possessed people display another symptom, a symptom that Kurt Koch calls hyperesthesia or excessive sensibility. This is a condition that marks a person's 
ability to have supernatural access to information that he or she would not otherwise know. The ability to speak a language that they've never learned. The ability to have access to private information that clearly could not be known by them. And clearly voice patterns that go well beyond a person's ability to mimic or mock. Another characteristic of demon-possessed people is a phenomenon known as occult transference. This means that a demon has the real ability to enter the body and the real ability to exit that body. A person who has mental or emotional problems might be able to fake or recreate some of these symptoms, but not all of them and not all of the time. But look what the text says. They brought to him. And that's the key phrase. They brought to him. All who were sick or demon possessed. The verb tense indicates they brought to him and they kept on bringing and they kept on and they kept on right when you thought that one wave would be gone. Another wave would show up. And that seems to be part of the point that each and every one of us can grab onto, And that is the reality that right from the start of Jesus's ministry, the right thing to do is to bring people to him. We bring people to Jesus. As a matter of fact, when you follow Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, we're going to find Peter, James, John. We're going to find Andrew and the other apostles bringing people to Jesus. Jesus will walk the planet Earth. He will live the perfect life. He will die on the cross. He will rise from the dead. And after his resurrection, people will bring people to Jesus. After he ascends into heaven, Peter, James, John, Paul will write about crowds gathering. And in the first week of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus into heaven, Peter will point people to Jesus and tell people, go to Jesus. Because it's Jesus who has the power to save you and to heal you, to make you whole and well. So why do we bring people to Jesus? For that very reason, because it's Jesus who provides human beings with a new nature. Jesus brings people forgiveness. Jesus brings people hope. Jesus himself invites the people to come to him. And remember what we've already learned in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 17, do you remember when he called his own disciples in verse 17 and he said to them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Clearly, that's an invitation. Follow me. Go where I'm going. Be willing to do what I'm doing. And then in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, one of the most quoted scriptures in all of the New Testament, Jesus says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Why bring people to Jesus? Because they're in bondage. Why bring people to Jesus? Because they're weighted down. And look at the promise that Jesus gives. I'll give you rest. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writing to Timothy said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
If God has given us the spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, then it makes perfect sense that the presence of power in the Holy Spirit, the presence of love in the character of Christ, the presence of a sound mind can be had. Because of God's grace and God's mercy, we can bring people to Jesus. Jesus commands the demons with a word. And the same is true of disease. In Luke's gospel, we read in Luke chapter 8, verse 35, they went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found a man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. You want to know why? Because when they found him, they found him naked and enraged. He was living a life of isolation and bondage. He lived in a tomb and cut himself. When they found him, they found the remnants of the shackles and the chains that held him as people tried to bind him, to keep him from losing control. The sudden and dramatic transformation would have been impossible apart from the power and apart from the care and apart from the compassion of Jesus. I know that some of you can relate. But perhaps others can't. Maybe you're listening to what I'm saying and you have no idea what I'm talking about. You've never descended so deep into a dark place, into a wicked place, into a selfish place. Have you ever embraced sin and sunk so low that you thought that there was no hope for you? The darkness, like a palpable presence, just enveloped your heart and you could feel the darkness and the wickedness begin to squeeze whatever presence of hope might have been available. Have you ever thought that your drug use, have you ever thought that your wicked personal behavior, have you ever thought that your mind and your heart and your mouth would never allow you to be made whole? Bondage brings despair and desperation and sometimes depression and sometimes hopelessness. But don't you understand that when Jesus is present, hope is never far away? Don't you understand that when Jesus is present, forgiveness is never far away? Don't you understand that when Jesus shows up, a new nature is never far away? Are you deeply scarred? Do you understand what it means that when Jesus shows up, you can be helped? Or are you still struggling to even bring yourself to believe that Jesus is willing to help? And I'm here to tell you, he is, if you're willing to let him. That's what that phrase means. All who are sick. Why bring people to Jesus? He's the great physician. You know, in the book of Psalms, in David's Psalms, in Psalm 32, verse 1, we read about David crying out to the Lord, how it is the Lord who is able to effect forgiveness and hope. And David writes with all of his might, He is the one who heals all my diseases. There is no disease of the soul that remains unfamiliar to Jesus. And guess what? What complaints are we able to bring to our doctor? 
Well, sin makes us weak. Sin brings pain. Sin brings trouble. It paralyzes so that we're unable to act. It makes us unclean like the leper. The world is one large hospital and Jesus is the physician on call. So who can come to Jesus? All who are sick. All who need comfort. All who are troubled. All who require forgiveness, all who require hope, all who require wholeness. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, that doesn't seem like such a noble motive. I mean, look at what they're doing. People are coming to Jesus in droves. And look what they're doing. They just want something from Jesus. Well, aren't we a little bit sympathetic towards that? Most of the people coming to Jesus want something from Jesus, and we can hardly blame them. Do you have a loved one, a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, a child? And you see their life ruined, wrecked, dark, wicked. And you wish to God, you pray to God. Lord, help them. I wish they would get help. I wish they would get help. Who doesn't want their loved ones to be made whole? In one sense, the crowd includes those who want something from Jesus. In one sense, the crowd includes people who have no idea about Jesus. They have no idea that he's the Messiah. They have no idea that he's going to die on a cross. They have no idea that he's going to rise from the dead. They have no idea that he's going to ascend into heaven. They have no intention of knowing him. They have no intention of loving him. They have no intention of serving him or praising him or following him or obeying him. And maybe that's you. You want something from Jesus, but you have no, no intention whatsoever of giving him access to your heart, giving him access to your life, giving him access to your future. In a few short weeks, Jesus is going to feed a multitude. He's going to feed 4,000 and he's going to feed 5,000. In John's gospel, the sixth chapter, in the 26th verse, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus will confront them in the not too distant future. Jesus will confront them and say, you know, for a lot of you, I just seem to be a meal ticket, a gravy train, a a way out of poverty or emptiness or hunger. But I want to be so much more. The Lord Jesus wants to be so much more. People want a miracle. People want healing. They want deliverance, but they don't want the spiritual implications of the source and power and meaning of the miracle. We want material and temporal relief, but not necessarily spiritual and eternal life. Sometimes we don't even know our own heart and we don't even know our own motives. My response 
Sometimes I don't know my heart and sometimes I don't know my motives. And so my answer, bring them to Jesus anyway. Bring them to Jesus. Let him sort out the motives. Let Jesus sort out the methods. Because one of the things that I want to point out is the access to Jesus. Look at verse 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Think about it. The simple dwelling place of Simon, Peter, and Andrew is all of a sudden transformed into a center for healing and deliverance. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that's what your heart became? And wouldn't it be wonderful if that's what this church became? A center for healing and deliverance, a place where Jesus shows up and we have the freedom to support one another and encourage one another and pray for one another and to talk with one another and to bless one another and to provide a mechanism so that we can bring each other to Jesus on the other side of the door. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. On the other side of the door, Jesus was healing people. I want you to think about it. Dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of people show up. They gather on the northern part of the Shores of Galilee, they go into the little village and just beyond the door, just beyond the door, Jesus is there and Jesus is praying for people and Jesus is healing people. What would you do? How long would you stand there? How long would you stay there? The news of power and compassion spread quickly. It makes perfect sense that the whole city gathered at the door. We would be foolish to reject or ignore the possibility that hope is available. You mean, you mean on the other side of that door, there's someone powerful enough to forgive my sins? Do you mean just beyond that door, there's someone who can give me freedom and hope? Are you telling me that just beyond that door, there is someone who loves me and is willing to touch me and make me whole and well? How do I find him? How do I get just beyond the door? On Wednesdays, I'm teaching through the book of Jeremiah. We've made our way through the first chapter and the second chapter and the third chapter. And we're almost in the middle of the third chapter. Soon we'll come to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, where the prophet says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Have you made a half-hearted effort? A three-quarter-hearted effort? Or even less? Are you making a... One-fifth effort or a one-tenth effort or even a one-percent effort. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible. I'll talk to my friends. But do you really get up in the morning and do you really, really look for him and long for him? Jesus is the door. You know, in ancient Sodom... God sent an angel to rescue a man named Lot and his wife. Their two daughters and their two husbands. You'll remember in the book of Genesis, Abraham pleaded with God not to destroy, not to visit the judgment. He said, if there are 50 people there, surely you'll stay your hand. And the Lord said, sure. How about 40? Right on. I know it's rude and 
a little bit presumptuous. How about 30? Sure. How about 20? Okay. Hey, I know I I keep bugging you and keep negotiating. I, I feel like this is the price is right. And I can see Abraham doing the math. Lot, his wife, two daughters, two sons, you know, with six righteous people. You you would think that they would make a difference in a town with so many. Surely, surely, surely there are ten people who know and trust and love the Lord. Surely there are ten people there, but there weren't, were there? There weren't even ten people. And the angel shows up. And the angel is invited into the Lot's home. And they rest just beyond the door. And men filled with lust and rage wanted to sexually assault an angel from heaven. What do you think about that? Can you imagine your God, you send an angel, an angel to provide deliverance, and the people all around say, hey, let's sexually assault this angel. How dark and how wicked and how disgusting is that? And they pounded on the door and the Bible says that they were struck blind in their rage and anger and lust. And they groped at the door and they fought at the door and they groped at the door and they fought at the door for an opportunity to satisfy their rage and their lust. Unbelievers are willing to work hard in order to satisfy their wickedness and Christians continue to play games. There is a God. There is a Jesus. And there's a Jesus who's willing to, to give aid. There's a, there's a Jesus who's willing to provide hope and healing and deliverance. In John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Then Jesus, in verse 7, said to them, Uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I'm the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There he is, just on the other side of the door. What are you willing to do to get to the other side of the door, particularly when the most basic thing that you have to do is to simply open the door? There is no other door. There is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. And in order to go through the door, you have to stoop down to enter through the door. Everything of self and of this world has to be cast away. There are three doors that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. The door of opportunity in Revelation 3a. Behold, I've set before you a door that no man can open and no one can shut. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, Jesus knocks at the door and he says... If anyone opens the door, I'll come into him and I'll have fellowship with him. And in John chapter 4, verse 1, we see a doorway. John sees a doorway open up into heaven. And he hears a voice say, come up. There's a door. And just beyond the door, 
is hope and healing and deliverance. I want you to think just for a moment. Who gathered at Peter's door? Do you suppose it was the desperate? Do you suppose it was family members who brought the blind and the lame and the demon possessed? Do you suppose it was family and friends? Do you think they brought the desperate and the diseased? Do you think the skeptic showed up and the curious because, hey, this is Capernaum and it's not every day that we see demons flee and disease healed? Is it even possible? Could it possibly be true? How does Jesus respond? Does he isolate them? Does he say the skeptic and the curious wait outside? Does he say, okay, look, for healing, let's take the easy cases. Backache, come on up. Toothache, come on up. Headache, fever, come on up. Blind, just stay where you are. No. You know what Jesus does? Every single person. The blind, the lame, the diseased, the hurt, the desperate, the dark. He doesn't just simply select the easy cases or those who are open to suggestion or manipulation. Our Kent Hughes writes, how nice it would have been to have a Jesus to heal us when we have a fever, to make us wealthy, to give us prestige. Unfortunately, for every prayer that goes up in prosperity, 10,000 prayers go up in adversity. It's natural for us to want a magic Jesus. But we must always remember that God is not someone to be manipulated or used. He's to be loved and he's to be worshipped and he's to be served regardless of what comes in this world. Unquote. I agree with every single word he has said. But I'm going to suggest something else in addition to his comment. But what about when Jesus invites you to come? What about when Jesus says, I'm thinking about you. And I'm thinking about you all the time. And I'm thinking about that dark place and that wicked place and that empty place and that lonely place and that fearful place. And I'm willing to respond. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, the prophet writes, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. He's basically saying, this is not a charge. This is not a game. I'm not trying to generate income. I'm not trying to fleece you. I'm not saying, give me your money. I'm not trying to open up a circus. But I only have one choice. Knowing that I have no ability whatsoever. And that's to bring you to Jesus. Knowing that Jesus does have the ability. 
Giles Fletcher writes, he is a path if any be misled. He is a robe if any naked be. If any chance to hunger, he is bread. If any be a bondman, he is free. If any be but weak, how strong is he? To dead men, life is he. To sick men, health. To blind men, sight. And to the needy, wealth. A pleasure without loss. A treasure without stealth. He will be whatever you need him to be. And he won't compromise his character or his will. The Bible says that he shall supply all your needs, but he won't supply a single greed. And then we see the ability of Jesus. Look at verse 34. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. The text tells us that Jesus healed many. Someone asked me in the first service, why not all? The answer? I have no answer. Then he healed many. Because the point of the passage, the emphasis on the passage, is on the power of Jesus to heal every sickness and every disease. And the emphasis is on the power of Jesus to conquer the consequences of sin, no matter how debilitating, no matter what stage, no matter what condition. The power of Jesus delivers from every phase and form of sin. And why do you suppose that's important? Because guess what? This is only the first day of his ministry. Yeah, you should laugh. Yes, this is the first day. If you do this on the first day, can you imagine what the second day and the third day is going to be like? We see something remarkable. Jesus really cares about the physical, the emotional, the spiritual condition of human beings. You know, we might be distant and detached. We might want to keep an emotional safety distance when we see someone who is blind or we see someone who is deaf or we see someone who is disabled as if their disability could be caught by you the moment you touch them or care about them. But not so with Jesus. Jesus really cares. He loves them. Even when they come to him. With impure, insincere, inconsistent motives. He loves them. And he repeatedly touches them. And he doesn't allow the demons to speak. Why? The reason is given right there in the text. Because they knew him. In what way did they know him? As the little boy who was born in Bethlehem, who grew up in Nazareth. As the person who confounded the teachers when he was 12 years old. Or the person who goes back to Nazareth. Or the person who works in his stepfather's carpentry shop. Is that the Jesus do they know, that they know? Or do they know him because he is the second person of the Trinity. The self-existent God. The one who's been enthroned since the beginning of time. The person who has control over time and space and history and the past and the present and the future. Do they know him as the one who has complete authority and complete control? 
Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. He restrains the evil spirits. Why? Because the Bible says that Jesus doesn't require demons to authenticate his supernatural ministry or his amazing message. That your sins can be forgiven. That you can have a right relationship with God. The Bible teaches that our world is hounded by suffering and haunted by the invisible. Malevolent spirits. And does Jesus still have the ability? Does he still have the power to heal and deliver and to save and set free? In the New Testament, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what does the day in the life of Jesus look like? For Mark... It begins in service, in power, in authority in the synagogue. He touches someone in the spirit world. He heals a man's mind and then a woman's body. He restores the natural condition of life so that there can be what the Bible calls abundant life. He's approachable. He's accessible. He's able. And we bring people to Jesus. That's what we're going to do. We're going to bring people to Jesus. Because he's the son of man and he identifies with us. Because he's the consolation of Israel and the power of God. We bring people to Jesus because he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We bring people to Jesus because he's the resurrection and the life. We bring people to Jesus because he's the good shepherd. We bring people to Jesus because he's the light of the world. We bring people to Jesus because he's the mighty God, the rock, the bread of life, the physician, the prophet, the counselor, the door, the king of kings, the deliverer, the true vine. The Lord from heaven and Emmanuel. Jesus. You know, 400 years ago, the church sang a song. Jesus, Savior, come to me. Let me ever be with thee. Come and never more depart. Thou who reignest in my heart, Lord, for thee I ever sigh. Nothing else can satisfy. Ever do I cry to thee. Jesus, Jesus, come to me. Earthly joys can give no peace. Cannot bid my longing cease. Still to have my Savior near. This is all my pleasure here. All that makes the angels glad in their garb of glory clad. Only fill me with distress. If thy presence does not bless thou alone, my God and Lord, art my glory and reward. Thou hast bled for me and died in thy wounds. I safely hide. Come then, Lamb, for sinners slain, come and ease me of my pain. Evermore I cry to thee, Jesus, Jesus, come to me. Patiently I wait thy day for this gift. O Lord, I pray that when death shall come to me, my dear Jesus, thou wilt be. Cry out to him. 
He's available. Cry out to Him. He's accessible. Cry out to Him. He is able. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do. That you would change hearts. Lord, we ask people to change their mind. Knowing that if they're willing to change their mind about you, if they're willing to change their thoughts about God and about Jesus and about the Bible, if they're willing to change their mind that Jesus can, in fact, heal them and save them and use them, that, Lord, you're willing to change their heart. Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do. And, Lord, I pray that they would do what only they can do. Lord, I pray that they would take a first step in submission and obedience. Lord, for the sinner, I pray that he or she would cry out for a savior. And for the person who is in a dark place and an empty place. In a depressive and disorienting place. That, Lord, that they would cry out for light. For joy. For your love and your presence. Lord, I pray that they would sense that just beyond that door, there's a place of hope and a place of healing, a place of wellness. Lord, I pray that they would open the door of their own heart and that they would invite you in so that they could experience peace and forgiveness and hope and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.